Please turn with me to Isaiah 44. We're going to be looking at the last part of Isaiah 44, and then we'll be looking at the first 13 verses of chapter 45. So Isaiah 44:24 through 45:13. Before we go to God's word, let's go again in prayer and ask for His help. With us, pray. Oh Lord Jesus, as we come to Your Word, we pray that we would come knowing that this is Your holy and inerrant Word. It is perfect for us, even when we are not perfect. And it is the thing that we ought to believe concerning you. It is what we ought to believe concerning what you require of us. And so, Lord, we pray that as we come to it, that you would help us, that you would grow us, that you would open up our hearts so that we might receive the goodness of your word and its wisdom, that you would convict us of our sin, that we might cast down our idols and look to you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So as I read through this passage, we're going to get to a place, we're getting to a place in Isaiah where it's going to start to be really specific. Um, And so it reminded me of these things called the Dead Sea Scrolls, which you've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. In November of 1946, the first Dead Sea Scrolls were recovered it was basically just a bunch of manuscripts containing Old Testament texts. And what was incredible about one of these scrolls they found was that it was a completely intact book of Isaiah. All 66 chapters, only missing a few parts due to damage. No other thing. And what was incredible about this scroll was that it was a thousand years younger or earlier than the previous text that they had and yet it showed how God's word had been perfectly preserved throughout all of those years and so with it there came lots of criticism of course about Isaiah because there's lots of criticism about God and his word particularly about the authorship of Isaiah Isaiah wasn't a new book in 1946 by any stretch nor were criticisms about it but it sparked this new debate about it and one of the debates centered around the idea that Isaiah could not have written the whole book there's no way that he could have because of the text that we're going to read today in our text today Isaiah will talk about the one who is going to deliver the people of Israel from the Babylonians And he's not going to do so in vague terms. A lot of what we've read in Isaiah has been kind of this this vague thing, you know. Not not all of it, obviously, but some of it's maybe hard to understand if you're not looking at Scripture from a particular point of view. It may be hard for the unbeliever to, to look at this and say, I don't know, it doesn't make a lot of sense. But it's not hard when we read that he names the person that is going to deliver his people. He says it's going to be a man by the name of Cyrus. Cyrus wouldn't be born for another 150 years. Yet Isaiah called him by name. And lo and behold, he was right. While the world doubts that this could even be a possibility, that there's no way that this man Isaiah could have named this other man Cyrus 150 years previous. With God, this sort of thing is not only just possible, but it's just normal. 
It is the part of what the scriptures do. They do it all the time. It's in the, it's in the character of God to preserve his holy word as he holds it together, just as he holds all the world together and all that is in it, just as he called a people for himself from the foundations of the world and made a plan to save them. This is a Lord who keeps his things and has a plan. As we read the text today, we're going to see that God is not only sovereign over his creation, but that he also orchestrates his perfect will to take place even by using a pagan conqueror named Cyrus. We're going to see ultimately this points to the, the one savior of his people, Jesus Christ. So as we consider our text, we'll consider three main ideas. The Lord as sovereign, the Lord as conqueror, and then finally the Lord as savior. And so look with me together at the text, Isaiah 44, starting at verse 24. Please stand with me in the honor of the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 44, verse 24. Thus says the Lord... Your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners and turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited, and the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. And who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of your temple, your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open up that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or, or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to the father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will your command, will you command me concerning your children and the work of my hands? 
I made the earth and created man on it. With It was my hands that stretched out the heavens. I have commanded all their hosts. I have stirred them up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for a price of reward, says the Lord of hosts. Amen. This is God's word. You may be seated. <clears throat> so remember last week, we talked about the theme of idolatry of Israel and how God declared himself as the only true God, not just for Israel, but for all the world. Not only that, but we learned that God intended to save his idolatrous people. He planned to forgive their idolatry. He called them to return to him. This is important because remember, this is written to a people who would one day be in exile in Babylon. So as you as you read this, think that this is going to be given to a people who are going to be in a land that is not their own. And they're reading, hey, idolatrous people, return to me. It might be easy for them to think that God had forgotten them. Rather than creating a God in their own image, they should turn to the one, the one true God, and worship him because he has a plan to save them. And so in our text today... We read specifically about God's plan to save his people from exile. So it might be easy for us to think, well, this has nothing to do with me because I'm not living in Babylon in 6th century B.C. It may be easy for us to think this has nothing to do with us. Well, hopefully we don't look at 21st century A.D. U.S. as home. So just like Israel and Babylon, we await the coming of our Messiah. We await his second coming, when all things will finally be made right and we will no longer be in exile, but we will be on our way home. So we can definitely understand this for our day as well. That brings me to the first point, the Lord as sovereign. Look with me again at verse 24 in chapter 44. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer who formed you from the womb, I am the Lord who made all things. Who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. What we have here is really an extension of what we read last week. These things are all connected, of course. We don't have these sorts of divisions in the original text. We just kind of make them arbitrarily. And so you have this same kind of continuation. This is one of the major themes in Isaiah is the idea that God holds together all the earth, that he is majestic and holy and sovereign and all things are his. Not only that, he holds them all together by the word of his power. The reader is reminded again, your creator is not only your creator, but he's also your Lord. He is your redeemer. There is no role in which the Lord doesn't serve for you. The one who made you in the womb of your mother is also the one who made 400 billion stars in the Milky Way and gave all of them a name. That is the same Lord. He is the lone actor when it comes to first causes, so much so that all the thinkers of the day would not even be close to being able to figure him out. And that's what we see in verse 25. Who not only made all these things, but also frustrates the sons of liars, who makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish. 
liars may seem a little bit out of place here with diviners and wise men. People are constantly trying to look at things and guess what's going to happen. But the word liars here is the word that would have been used for false prophets. So it makes total sense that he is frustrating these people who think that they know what are going, what's going on. We're reading here is the idea that God of the Bible is free to do as he pleases. He is also past figuring out. Something that modern Bible critics would do well also to notice. That the God that we worship in this Christianity is not one that you can just simply put your finger on and say, yeah, I get it. Because no, you don't. They're the first of their kind, these sorts of people here, these critics, these liars, but they will not be the last, of course. Back when the Bible was still being written, it had critics and those who would try to frustrate the word of God, those who would try to set other things at odds with the word of God, and yet they are turned on their head consistently and constantly by the one true God because he does as he pleases. We not only see this in the Old Testament, but we see this with the coming of the Son of Man, Jesus Christ, who came to earth, became man, and he frustrated the same sorts of people in his day. And while he frustrates the false prophet, notice he affirms, verse 26, his own servant. Again, understand here that his will alone is the one that is being done, which is why when we get to verse 28, when we have the naming of this man Cyrus, it shouldn't at all surprise us that that God can just name a person and that person come to be and then Be the conqueror. It shouldn't surprise us. Whoever Cyrus is, it shouldn't surprise us that he's going to accomplish the will of God because God's will is always accomplished. He can use whoever he wants to use to do that sort of thing. We're all evidence of that very fact. I deal with questions concerning the sovereignty of God more than I deal with any other subject, probably. Over the course of my ministry, I feel like that has been unequivocally the case. And as you read through books about, like Isaiah, where it can be plainly seen that the God that we worship is first the only God, and second, he's a God that does as he pleases. He doesn't necessarily consult others. Notice that when he spread out the universe, he did it by himself as if there was another that could come and help him. There wasn't. There's not another God that he is reacting to God doesn't strategize. He's not in heaven wondering what the enemy is doing so he can somehow strategize and and work his way. He not only knows every single move that's ever been made, he, he made them also. This is important because when we worry and when we stress as Christians, we have created a situation in our heads where our Lord, our Creator, our Redeemer... We, we've created a situation where we believe he doesn't really have control over this thing. He may be stretched out the heavens. He may have done that. He may have named this man Cyrus 150 years before he actually came to be. But this little thing right here, he can't possibly have control over this. And so that's why I need to worry. Because that will do a lot. Our response to this kind of thing is to turn to the idols that we make of course which is what we saw in israel's history we really have seen that throughout all generations of god's people we saw that very clearly in our text from last week 
Isaiah has to feel this tension also as a pastor to his people, as a prophet of God. So he's named this servant of God. And now he's going to go into more detail as to who this Cyrus is and what his purpose is. And that brings us to the next point, the Lord as conqueror. Look with me at 45 verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. It's really hard for us to grasp the significance of this for a few reasons. One, because we don't speak Hebrew. And another, because we tend to see the Bible as a series of independent stories rather than seeing the Bible as this overarching story of God's redemptive history. Now, we do that here. And hopefully you only ever hear that there's this one continuous story throughout all of Scripture and Jesus is really the one who it's all about. We call that idea covenant theology. And you'll always get that covenantal perspective from this pulpit, or at least that's the goal anyway. But we tend to lose sight of that sometimes when we worry and when we see the little particular things of this world that tend to get at us. And so we tend to think, where can I go to find the answer of this thing? Not seeing Jesus as the ultimate answer to whatever it is. Now the reason that speaking Hebrew would be important is because this word... Thus, the Lord says to his anointed is the Hebrew word Mashiach, which is the word that we know as Messiah. So read verse one. Thus says the Lord to his Messiah, to Cyrus. This is a term that has been reserved for David, who was, you know, this great king. And to the future Messiah, who would come and reign on the throne of David forever. Of course, that being our Lord Jesus. So here, the Lord, thus says the Lord, the Lord calls Cyrus his anointed one, his Messiah. Now this may bother us, but you have to understand, this would set off alarms in the Hebrew mind. Because they looked for a day when a Hebrew man would come and deliver them, that he would be their king, and that he would sit on the throne of David, and he would conquer the world. A Hebrew man would do this. They couldn't dream of a pagan like Cyrus being called God's anointed. Notice notice God's action here as well. Whose right hand I have grasped. To subdue the nations before him. To loose the belts of kings. To open doors before him. He grabs Cyrus by the hand. And uses him to subdue the nations. It immediately made me think of me holding my kids' hands as we walked through parking lots. I wasn't necessarily holding their hand more than I was clenching it. I was, they weren't going anywhere. We weren't, we weren't having a leisurely stroll through the parking lot. I was making sure they weren't going to go anywhere. He grabbed Cyrus by the hand and conquered nations using him. Cyrus is simply a tool that God is using to do his work. Did he need Cyrus to do his work? No. He crushed the army of, of Pharaoh with the Red Sea. He, you know, he can just kind of do as he pleases. He, he sent an angel of death among the Assyrian army and killed 185,000 of them in one night. It's not as if he needs this pagan to do his bidding. 
But according to his perfect will, this, for whatever reason God has chosen, this is his plan. And notice he continues working out this plan with this man Cyrus. Verse 2, I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, the hordes of secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name, that Cyrus would know that. And look at his reasons. Verses 4 and 5. For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen, I call you, Cyrus, by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, Cyrus, though you do not know me. His reasons? For his servant Jacob, for his own people, he'll use someone who doesn't even know him to do his own purposes. He'll use a pagan ruler so that nations will know that there is no other God besides him. And notice what he culminates with in verse 7. This is this whole sweeping idea of the text. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. He culminates with this sweeping idea, meaning that from light to dark, think about all the things that are in between light and dark. All things. Think of all the things that are in between well-being and calamity. All things. The Lord that does all these things. Verse 7 is one of those verses that has caused all kinds of problems over the years, especially if you have a KJV, which says, I make peace, the Lord speaking, I make peace and create evil. The Hebrew word there is raw, R-A, which is a word that can mean lots of different things. Think about our word bad. You know, there's lots of things that our word bad can mean. We might think food is bad, but we also might think Adolf Hitler is bad. There's a wide range between me not liking whatever and me thinking that Hitler was a bad person. There's a pretty wide range there. And so this word is a pretty wide range of a word. So you have to understand what's going on here. Is God the author of evil? Well, can can God can't do evil, right? It's out of his character. He's, it's, it would be completely against his character. If God is good, then he is not evil. So this is not what this is about, obviously. But what do we do with this? Verses like this, and there are many, many in Scripture. We're about to go look at a couple others. They show us our hearts. They show us the problems that we have. And are bent toward creating a God that makes sense to us rather than worshiping the one who might not all the time. In fact, does not all the time. Consider the context again. God has a people for himself. He's raising up a pagan named Cyrus to smash another pagan nation, Babylon, to deliver his people who are idolatrous, mind you. And we also know that God is working all things together for the good, right? That's one of those keychain verses that we have, that Romans 8, 28. He's working all things together for the good for who? 
for those who he loves, for those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. But why does anyone love God? Why can anyone say, be, why can it be said of anyone that they love God? Because he first loved them. Again, a people for himself from the foundations of the earth is what he has set aside for himself. So when God raises up a man named Cyrus who worships, worships other God and uses him to show the nations that there are actually no other gods, we know that God is doing this for the purposes of delivering his covenant people, which is an absolutely good thing. Well, why couldn't he have just risen up a good godly leader to do this? Wouldn't that have been nice? Because, you know, like David and Solomon, like those guys who were so good and godly. Wait, that's not how this works at all. There is no good. God does as he pleases. He doesn't concern himself with our opinions concerning his choices. So what about when bad things happen to us then? Well, we must understand them from the perspective of the finite sinful creatures that we are. And when we do that, we might look at the work of God and we might say to that particular thing, whatever it is that has happened, and we might look at it and we might say that is bad. Only because it seems bad at the time. We have no way of understanding God's ultimate intention of this. Think about the Babylonian families that were there when Cyrus was storming the gates. Was it good to be a Babylonian family when Cyrus came in to deliver the Judah, the exiles of Judah? It wasn't. But God has an intention that is way beyond our scope and our understanding. One of the places that we can go to get a good understanding of this is the book of Job. Encourage you all to read this over the summer. It will take that long because it's just an arduous book. It's a hard book to read through. But turn with me to Job chapter 2. We all at least know the story of Job and what's going on with his life, particularly the first two chapters. We read those and we've talked, probably heard taught those verses, but the rest of the 40 or so chapters, it's easy to just get bogged down in because it's really just Job and his friends going back and forth about what they think God is until God finally shows up at the end and says, this is who I am. You all need to be quiet. I just summarized the whole book for you, but I encourage you all to read it. So look with me. Remember, just a summary. Job has several things go wrong in his life. You know, all of his money, all of his workers, all of his everything, including all of his children, and then his health all go away. It's pretty rough. And so look with me at Job chapter 2, verse 9. It's just him and his wife left. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Job was a man of God. Do you still hold fast your integrity, curse God, and die? But he said to her, you speak as one. Now hear this, understand this. Going back to Isaiah, bringing it all together. You speak as one of the foolish women who speak, who would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Remember what happened to Job. He lost 
everything. He lost anything that you could lose. He lost it. His wife tells him, now this is the time. If you're going to curse God at all, obviously this is the time. You don't have anything left but a nagging wife. And notice what he says. Shall we not receive good and not also receive evil? And again, I encourage you to read the whole thing. We're going to skip to the end and spoil the ending. Come go with me to verse 42 or chapter 42. That word evil there is the same word that we find in Isaiah 45, by the way. So in Isaiah, in, a, in Job 42, we have this whole conversation and it culminates with Job being faithful and Job being blessed in verse 10 and 11. Look with me, 42, 10 and 11. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters, all who had known him before, and ate bread with him at his house. They're having a party. They're celebrating. Job has been blessed beyond measure. And then they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Again, that same word, raw, which you probably, your version probably says something like calamity or something like that, which I think is probably the best translation, disaster, something along that. Does this mean that God is evil, that he's brought evil or bad upon Job? No, God is not evil. God is good. Does he cause things to happen that we in our finite minds can't possibly consider as good? Yes. All the time. Our sinful minds only ever want comfort from God, right? We only ever want pillows and nice soft sheep and ice cream and all the good things of the world. We want to be able to define what comfort is. I just did, right? But we forget that God only ever means good. Brothers and sisters in Christ, hear this. He only ever means good to those that he calls my people. Remember what he did for his people. He sent his only son for them, his only begotten son. The most wicked event in history is the crucifixion of Christ. The most horrible thing that has ever happened to anyone happened to Jesus Christ. And this was ordained by God to bring about the redemption of his covenant people. He rose up Cyrus to crush the Babylonians so that his people could return home so that one day there would be born to them who would save all his people from their sins. The Lord is working all things together for the good of those who love him to those who are called according to to his purposes. Even when bad things happen in life and they're difficult for us to understand, absolutely don't hear me saying that we shouldn't mourn and that we shouldn't struggle with the bad things in life because life is just hard and we know this. We know this as well as anyone. Life is not easy. Know that we don't worship a Savior that is trying really hard to make things comfortable for us. That's not who we worship. We worship a Savior who forms light and creates darkness, who makes well-being and creates calamity. 
We worship one who became man and dwelt among us to save his people from their sins, who became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. And that brings us to the last point, the Lord as Savior. Look with me, Isaiah 45, verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open up, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. These verses continue to strengthen the idea of God's sovereignty, not only in the realm of creation, but also when it comes to the realm of those who receive salvation. See this in verses 9 and 10 with this this picture of the pot talking to the potter. Paul borrows this in Romans chapter 9. Basically, again, the idea that God does as he pleases. The creation is never in a spot to question its creator. Can you imagine a pot looking up and saying, why do I not have handles? That's just preposterous. It's that same preposterous that we would even question God and what he's doing. If we aren't careful, we can get lost in these things. I know people who get lost in these things, people who will spend hours and hours and years and years bothered by the fact that God is sovereign over his creation and in his act of redemption. They'll toil with these ideas of man's responsibility versus God's sovereignty, and they'll get lost in man's will versus God's will, trying to work it all out. And maybe there's some merit in those intellectual exercises, but it has no merit if we lose the fact that God came down. A good God came down to a bad people, you and I, to save some of them. That he might save one is absolutely crazy that he would save any of them. If you don't believe it, go back and read 44 about how idolatrous we are as a people. That he would save one is an extreme act of mercy. But we are evidence that he is even more merciful than we can ever imagine. So when the unbeliever says to me, well, I can't worship a God who does bad things to good people. I always say you're right. It's because you're still convinced that you're a good person. Our problem is with the the character of God. And that our understanding that his character is so much better than our own. We are desperately wicked. We are outside of God's redeeming power. We'd still be in our own sin if it weren't for him. Yet because of Jesus, we have hope not just for today, but for all eternity. Verse 13. I have stirred him up in righteousness. I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Cyrus did this one time for the people of God in Babylon. Jesus did this for all time for a sinful people. He did this again by becoming sin, that they might become the righteousness of God. Cyrus was merely a tool that was used by God. Jesus, the very Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, He is God and He came to deliver His people. All history, everything, good, bad things, have been ordained by God so that this could be accomplished. It continues to happen to that exact same 
end. No one, not one of his own people will be lost. He'll do whatever it takes to gather each one of them up for himself. You read John chapter 6, you get the same theme. So this shouldn't cause any fear or concern for us at all. In fact, it should bring us our greatest comfort. Even when we look at the world around us and we wonder, can things possibly get any worse? The answer is, well, maybe they can. Maybe they can. But know beyond all doubt that they are going to get a whole lot better for us, brothers and sisters in Christ, when he finally brings his exiled people home. And if you're an unbeliever this morning, maybe this confirms what you've already thought about God. I don't know. I don't know. We can talk about that if you want. But I want to make sure that you've heard God is working these things out together for his own covenant people. And if you don't believe in his son, Jesus Christ, that's not you. Outside of Jesus Christ, you'll ultimately be left in your sin and punished for all eternity. Instead, call upon Jesus and be saved. He died to set you free from sin and death. So in conclusion, brothers and sisters in Christ, we worship a God of light and darkness. Let us take great comfort in that. When we, when the lost world asks, asks us about the darkness of this world, let us tell them about the light of the world, Jesus Christ. Let's go to him in prayer. Our Lord Jesus, as we read these texts from the scriptures, and they're, they're difficult only because we're difficult. Only because we can't imagine that there would be a situation in our own lives that you could somehow help us, that you could comfort us because the things in our lives are so bad. Lord, forgive us for not trusting you. Forgive us for not trusting your will for what's going on in our lives. Even when things are difficult, we know that you have a plan We know that you have a plan for your people for all eternity. And even when we struggle with what that might be and how we might get to the end, we shouldn't struggle with you, Lord. And so help us. Help us to rest in your sovereign will for our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.